Thank you. Good morning. Um, well, it's awesome to be with you this morning. I want to thank Pastor Kenny for the invite. And uh, this is my second time here. My wife is with me for the second time. Many familiar faces from being over in Israel with you. And so I just, uh, I just really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, it's just really been an encouragement to Kathy and I to be uh, around this church that is so missions-minded. That's been encouraging. What else has been encouraging is to see some of you come to church in flip-flops. That's, that's really been amazing, so thank you. Uh, so today I want to talk about uh, the house of David. And when I say the house of David, I mean the the royal house, the, the dynasty of David. And uh, I can't help it, I'm an archaeologist, uh, so I'm going to be talking about the archaeological evidence behind the house of David. And I want to make it clear from the beginning, I've been studying the archaeology behind the house of David for over 10 years, and um, it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming amount, and, and more keeps coming to light. Uh, and, and more keeps being found in excavations. And so um, I don't have time to cover a lot of it, so I just chose five key examples of the archaeology behind the House of David. And uh, I'm just going to be going through those chronologically from the earliest and on through to the latest. Okay, so um, I'm going to keep, because we're going to cover quite a bit of ground, so I'm going to keep everything up on the screen for you. And let's uh, go ahead and start through these. Um, starting with the first, uh, the first example of the archaeology behind the house of David is uh, the palace of David, that house that David built for himself to dwell in. And uh, so we want to start with that. This is an aerial photograph that my son and I took. We, we spent three years flying this giant drone like this big in Israel. And uh, eventually, the military did take it out. But before it took it out, we got this picture of uh, the city of David. And so um, it's defined now today more by uh, roads than by walls. But um, if you look beyond the uh, city of David, you'll see the Temple Mount back there on Mount Moriah. And uh, you can also see the gold dome of the Dome of the Rock, the rock that the Dome of the Rock is named after is the rock that's up on top of Mount Moriah, which is where the Jewish temple, the Israelite temple that Solomon built, and uh, then later the Jewish temple standing in Jesus' day stood. And so just to give you an idea of what it looked like in ancient times, my son did this uh, depiction of it on the actual topography of Jerusalem. So that's uh, what the topography of Jerusalem looks like. You can see the walled city here. And then beyond it, uh, at this time that the city of David stood, there was nothing on the um, hill Moriah that you see there in the background. And so later Solomon expanded the city up to include the te temple on that. So again, what it looks like today and, uh, and then an idea of what it looked like in ancient times. So up at the high point, the Acropolis of the city of David is uh, this building, which was discovered in 2005 by the Israeli archeologist Elat Mazar. And um, so she was digging up on the Acropolis of the site when she came across these stone walls from a monumental building. 
She dug into them and pulled the pottery out of those walls, which dated its construction to the 10th century BC, which is the time of David. And so she uh, did what any good biblical archaeologist is supposed to do. She used the Bible to interpret what she found in the ground. So in this case, she used 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, which informs us that King David commissioned a palace for himself to be built in the city of David. And then on the high place of the city of David, she finds this monumental building which dates its construction to the 10th century BC, the time of King David. And she interprets it, therefore, as the palace of David. So um, I've taken many groups here. When, uh, when my family and I lived in Jerusalem for uh, 10 years, I used to go and just sit inside of these walls and contemplate a very, very important event that happened inside these walls. And this is an event that's known as the Davidic Covenant. And we know this is covered in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We know where it took place because verse 1 says, after the king was settled in his palace... Right? So what we're about to read took place in these, within these very stone walls. Uh, let's read it. The Lord declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So notice it's not talking about his dwelling place, right, house. It's talking about his dynasty, the, the lineage that will come from his own flesh and blood that will rule as kings. Um, and this is what the Lord is going to establish for him. And then the Lord makes him this promise. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Uh, by the way, that's impossible. <laughs> Without God, I should say, that's impossible. Um, if you study history, you'll see that kingdoms don't last. Empires, they don't last, much less the royal families who rule over them. And so to put this promise in perspective, let's think about the kingdom of Israel. And later in its history, it divides into two separate kingdoms, the divided kingdom. And we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel only lasts for a little over 100 years. And in that short window of time, it changes royal houses seven times. That's typical. It's common. So let's just look at one of those seven uh, as an example, the house of Basha. And uh, we can read about the house of Basha in 1 Kings 16. And so uh, this, is, this is how a house comes to an end. So I am about to wipe out Basha and his house. Here it goes. Zimri came in, struck him down and killed him. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. 
right? So that's the end of the house of Basha, the lineage of Basha, the throne of Basha, and the beginning of the house of Zimri, the throne of Zimri, which also isn't going to last very long because this happens seven times in just a little over a hundred years. So now think again of this promise that the Lord is making David. David, this isn't going to happen to you. This isn't going to happen to your family. This isn't going to happen to your throne. Your kingdom, your throne, your dynasty, your royal house will never end. How is that possible? But here's the thing. Once the Lord promises something, doesn't matter how impossible it seems, it's a sure thing, right? It's a sure thing. Uh, and this is what is being celebrated in uh, Psalm 89. Uh, I have sworn to David, my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. God doesn't lie. He's not going to lie to David. And what he swears by his holiness to do, he will do it. You can count on it. Um, now, why is it so important that the house of David, the lineage of David, continues through the ravages of history. Uh, and the answer is because the hope of Israel and the hope of the whole world rests upon it. Because the hope is in the coming of a person who is the Messiah who will come from the house of David. So, for example, uh, Isaiah, when he's prophesying uh, about the uh, Messiah, he says... In Isaiah 16, 5, in love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David. Therefore, logically, right, uh, the house of David then has to last from the time of King David at least until the time that the Messiah comes from it. And that creates uh, an interesting question that can be explored through archaeology. So what does the evidence say? Does the house of David come to an end like all the other earthly dynasties? Or does the evidence show that indeed the house of David lasts forever? Uh, very intriguing archaeological question. And that's what we're going to deal with with our remaining four examples of uh, archaeology. This is our example two. This is a well-known uh, inscription called the Tel Dan uh, inscription, which was found during excavations in uh, the site of Dan in the far north of Israel in, in 1993. And so um, they found this. It's on display today. It's an, it's an Aramean. It's on display today in the Israel Museum. And if you look, you'll see those kind of chalk-filled letters there. And that's where it says, Beit Dawid, House of David. And it dates to the 9th century BC. It's an Aramean king bragging about defeating the king from the kingdom of Judah. And so what he calls him is, I defeated the king from the house of David. 
And this dates to just a little over a hundred years after King David himself reigned. Okay, so again, for perspective, you take a little over a hundred years, that's how long the entire northern kingdom of Israel lasts, where it changes royal houses seven times. You take the same amount of time past King David, and we have here, independent of the Bible, archaeological evidence that the house of David, the kings are still ruling from the house of David for the kingdom of Judah. Okay, uh, that goes on. Our, our third example is uh, the palace of Sennacherib. And this is just one example from that palace, but uh, Sennacherib ruled from Nineveh, ancient Nineveh, which is the ruins of Nineveh are located in Iraq, uh, just uh, across the river, the Tigris River from Mosul. And so um, this mound that was the massive palace of Sennacherib began to be excavated in 1847 by a British explorer and archaeologist named Austin Henry Laird. And so he came in, his report is amazing, he starts uncovering this palace and all along the walls are these stone panels and carved into those stone panels are the accomplishments of Sennacherib. And much of this he shipped back to uh, London, and much of it can be seen today in the British Museum. I put this example of one of these stone panels up for you here. You see a figure up in that right-hand corner sitting on a throne. That's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, excavated from his, uh, from his palace. And once layered, whoops, what did I just do? Once layered, um, found these Assyrian records, then we had a very interesting situation here in scholarship, right? Because then there's the biblical record talking about the event of Sennacherib's invasion of the kingdom of Judah in 701 BC. And once he found these records, now we also have the Assyrian records talking about the same event. So we have it from the biblical perspective, the Israelite, those being attacked, and we have it now from this palace and the inscriptions that were found in this palace, also from Sennacherib himself and from the ones who are doing the attacking. And so just to uh, give you an idea of how these correlate, um, let's look at 2 Chronicles 32.9. When Sennacherib, king of Assyria... There's Sennacherib, king of Assyria in the Bible. There's Sennacherib, king of Assyria uh, on the wall of his palace that's been excavated. Um, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and his forces were laying siege to Lachish, Lachish being the second most powerful and important city in the kingdom of Judah after the capital of Jerusalem, right? So the Bible tells us Sennacherib laid siege to Lachish, and here on the walls of the palace of Sennacherib is the siege of Lachish, a stone picture of it. Now, how do we know that this is the siege of Lachish? Well, above it was found the inscription that said, hey, this is the siege of Lachish. <laughs> right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Okay, so um, again, we have the biblical perspective and uh, the Bible tells us that Sennacherib and the Assyrians came in. They wiped out all the fortified cities and eventually laid siege to Jerusalem. This is what's called the prism inscription 
found in Sennacherib's palace, where he, his take on it. And so he says this, as to Hezekiah the Jew, we read about King Hezekiah, right, from the house of David, ruling over Jerusalem at this time in the Bible, and here Sennacherib mentions him by name, Hezekiah the Jew. He did not submit to my yoke. Um, in fact, we know that Sennacherib really, 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 really wanted Hezekiah bad. <laughs> Because not only had he rebelled against him, but he also led a coalition of other nations and other kings to also rebel against Sennacherib. So he was after, Sennacherib was after Hezekiah um, particularly. And so uh, he says, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities and conquered them. Now listen to this. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem his royal residence, like a bird in a cage, I surrounded him with earthwork. So what is it exactly that Sennacherib is saying he laid siege to? The house of David. Inside the wall shut up like a bird in a cage is Hezekiah and his sons, and surrounding the walls of Jerusalem is the most powerful army the world has ever known. Uh, there, this is a critical time when the promise that God gave to David uh, is under great peril, that his house, his lineage is going to last forever. It's under great threat at this time in history. Um, so the question then is, what does Sennacherib want to do to Hezekiah and his sons? And we know what he wants to do to him from the other cities that he laid siege to and conquered. And so we're back to the um, siege of Lachish. And I want you to look down at the bottom there in the middle. I'm going to blow it up here in a second. But um, I want you to see there's three men that are stripped down and put on poles. This is what it looks like blown up. But I do want you to see just where it is there in the siege relief. And so we have uh, these... Soldiers, these Assyrian soldiers that have placed these men that are naked up on these poles. Judeans, we know they're Judeans because Lachish is a Judean city. This is a typical, common practice by the Assyrians, but what exactly is its purpose and what exactly are they doing? We know this from other uh, Assyrian inscriptions. So, for example, this one from uh, Sennacherib, I assaulted Ekron. At this time, Ekron also is another city in the kingdom of Judah. He says, I assaulted Ekron and killed the officials and patricians who had committed the crime and hung their bodies on poles surrounding the city. So who are these men from Lachish being represented in this stone picture? They're the leaders. They're the leaders of Lachish. That makes sense, doesn't it, right? If uh, a city rebels against you and you capture it, then who are you going to punish the most and make an example of the most? It's going to be the leaders. And what is their crime? They've rebelled against the, uh, the Assyrians, the king of Assyria. And what is their punishment? Uh, he decorates the outside of the city walls of the cities that he conquers with the bodies of uh, the leaders of the city. Well, we know from this other inscription, his foremost officials, I impaled alive on stakes um, and caused the country to behold it. That would do it, wouldn't it? 
I would do it. You put these guys, at least initially, we look again at the stone picture of Lachish. They, at least initially, were put up there alive. And um, that would send a message to the rest of the cities, uh, to the other nations in rebellion against the Assyrians. You don't want to mess with the king of Assyria, or you're going to end up like this. It was very effective, by the way. A lot of, a lot of cities put up the white flag and said, okay, we give up. Um, so there's no question then that this stone picture represents what Sennacherib wanted to do to the house of David. He wanted to breach the walls of Jerusalem. He wanted to capture the bird. He wanted to capture Hezekiah and his sons. He wanted to humiliate them by stripping them down. He wanted to torture them by impaling them alive on these poles to decorate the outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and send a message for others to behold uh, to surrender so that they didn't end up suffering the same fate. Okay, so uh, you may or may not know where the story goes from here in the Bible, but based on what we've already covered this morning, is there any way that the house of David is going to come to an end in this way. Uh, there's no way. Because God promised, and when God promises, it's a sure thing. He's not going to break his promise. His covenant with David will not fail. And this is why we read next in 2 Kings 19, I will defend the city, the Lord says, and save it for my sake. Why? Because he swore by his holiness. And for the sake of David, my servant, because he will not lie to David, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned, now listen to this, he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So the Bible says they didn't get, the Assyrians didn't get Jerusalem. He had to go to Nineveh and stay there. Now let's hear from Sennacherib, shall we? Uh, Sennacherib says this, Hezekiah did send me later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with 30 talents of gold. And he goes on and describes this gift. Who's sending the gift? Hezekiah. When's he sending it? Later. Later than what? Later than the siege of Jerusalem. And to who? Uh, to whom? Sennacherib, after he'd gone back to Nineveh. So here, Sennacherib admits he never did capture Jerusalem. In fact, it's the same prison inscription that earlier he's bragging, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. But then later in the same inscription, here he admits, but I never did get my hand into the cage and capture the bird. Um, so the biblical record and the Assyrian records agree that the Assyrians didn't get Jerusalem. And I, I don't even know how to explain how amazing that is. One of the most common, if not the most common, archaeological phenomenons in the biblical lands is the Assyrian burn destruction layer that is over every single city that they laid siege to. 
every single city as far north as beyond the uh, Euphrates and Tigris River, as far south as beyond the Nile River in Egypt, and everywhere in between, every single city that the Assyrians laid siege to, they captured except for one, the city of Jerusalem. And having participated in an excavation in Jerusalem for many, many years, one of the most amazing archaeological phenomenons of that dig isn't what we found, but what we didn't find, there's no Assyrian burn destruction over Jerusalem because this was the city that held the promises. This was a city ruled by the dynasty that held the eternal promise of God. Uh, so that's the Assyrian conquest. Now if we fast forward a little over 100 years, then we come to another conquest of Jerusalem, this time by the Babylonians, this time by the king Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, this time God doesn't save the city. Now why? Why doesn't God save the city? Well, it's very clear in Scripture that uh, it's because of the unfaithfulness of the kings from the house of David. If you read through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you'll be amazed at their unfaithfulness, uh, even sacrificing their own children to false gods. Now, an important point. If whether or not the uh, Davidic covenant succeeds or fails is dependent in any way on the kings that rule from it and their unfaithfulness, if it, if it did depend on that, then the covenant of da uh, with David would have failed a long, 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 long time ago. It would have come to an end. But by grace, it was dependent on God's ability to keep his promise to David. And so um, we have the Babylonians come, surround the city of Jerusalem. They breach the walls, 586 B.C. They burn the city. We do find that destruction layer in Jerusalem. Uh, they burn the temple. And then the fate of Zedekiah, the last king to rule from the house of David over, uh, over the kingdom of Judah, he suffers this fate as we read in 2 Kings 25. And he, that is Zedekiah, was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed, listen to this, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Well, that doesn't sound very good, does it? <laughs> that sounds a lot like what happened to the house of Basha. Um, could that be the end of the house of David? Could, could, could God have broken his promises? Could his covenant have failed? There's no way. There's got to be another explanation. And uh, that brings up our fourth example of archaeology of the house of David. Now, this is a picture that I took recently back in April. And um, I'm standing in Babylon in Iraq... When I take this picture, I've been trying for years and years to get a visa into southern Iraq. It's very difficult to do, especially if you're an American. But finally, I met the right contact in Jordan. 
that was able to get me a special visa and I was able to go to um, Iraq. It was during the pandemic and so I, had, I wasn't able to stay down at Babylon. I stayed in Baghdad and drove down. It's about an hour south of uh, Baghdad. I had to drive down each day, but I spent five full days in uh, Babylon, the ruins of Babylon. So what you're seeing here in the foreground is uh, some of the ruins from the palace of Nebuchadnezzar that you read about in the Bible. In the background there, in the old riverbed, uh, you see an artificial mound that's mounded up there and then a palace built on top of it. That's the palace of Saddam Hussein. And uh, vacant today. And uh, so Saddam very much believed that he was the next Nebuchadnezzar. And so he had the same kind of emblems and he built his palace higher than and overlooking the ruins of the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what I'm thinking standing in these ruins is I'm thinking, I, I got to get on that roof, right? Because that's going to provide the best view for a picture back onto these ruins that I'm standing on. So I go up there and there's a bunch of guys with machine guns and it's locked up and everything. But fortunately, in the Middle East, there's this thing called uh, bakshish. And bakshish means you give money, in this case, to the guys with machine guns, and they go and unlock the door. To uh... <laughs> so, so here I am in Saddam Hussein's former master bedroom. And uh, you can see the Euphrates. You can also notice I travel alone. I tend to travel alone. But anyways, you see the um, Euphrates River going by the window there, and then I get up on the roof. And, um, and so that's the view of the Euphrates River from uh, Saddam's roof. You see a mound in the background there. That's some of the ruins of Babylon. It's a building uh, in the ruins, but the city itself is literally miles and miles long and miles and miles wide. It's, it's huge. It's the largest ancient fortified city in the world. And so um, this is looking down on the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. So you, you see um, Nebuchadnezzar's palace there to the, in those buildings that are taller, that have more restoration work to the right. And then you see low-lying buildings to the left of those. Those are storage rooms. In the background, you see a wall going back there. That's a, a um, processional way. That's where the Ishtar Gate is. That's where all these temples and whatnot are located. And so um, you see that mound all the way back in the back there, the far back. Uh, the, the wall of the city is way beyond that. And then it goes that much further behind my back as I take this picture, just to give you an idea of how huge this city is. Anyways, I finally make it to Babylon. And the first place that I go is actually this nondescript uh, building here, the excavation. I got the excavation report in my hand. This building was excavated in 1903 by the Germans, by uh, the, their director, a guy named Robert Caldevey. And so I got the plan of this building. I go around to the front. You see this, uh, this staircase. That's a new staircase, but it's build built over where the ancient one uh, descended, and then it's this empty space there to the right of that staircase. This is the place that I'm fascinated with. This is the first place I go to in Babylon, and my Iraqi friend that's with me, Omar, is like, Joel, man, what are you doing? 
Right? I mean, there's this huge, one of the biggest temples in the world, the Temple of Marduk, and there's Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and there's the Ishtar Gate. Why did you, why are you looking at this place? What is wrong with you? And uh, I was telling him, Omar, man, what was found here is truly profound. When they were digging in 1903, right there, they came across this cache of clay tablets written on in cuneiform writing. And uh, they're called the Ration Tablets today, and they're on display in a museum in Germany. And they're called the Ration Tablets because that's what they are. They're rations, and it's the palace giving rations mostly to prisoners and then keeping a record of what they gave and, and to whom. So, you know, we gave this much barley to this person, and we gave this much oil to that person. And so on two of these tablets mentioned several times, we get this name and title of somebody receiving uh, receiving these rations. And so I'm just going to give you one translation of one of those mentions into English. We get this, uh, we get this name, Yakin. And Yakin, we get his title, King of Judah. If Yakin is the King of Judah, then what house is he from? The house of David. He's receiving this oil, and not just him, but the sons of the king of Judah. So we have here the house of David. These date to the 6th century BC. This is at the time of exile. We have, again, apart from the Bible, found through archaeology, the house of David existing at the time of the exile, receiving rations from the palace in Babylon. Uh, In other words, this place right here, is like, archaeologically speaking, like the resurrection of the dead for the house of David, right? And so that's why I'm so excited about it. Um, so the question then is, is who is this Yakin, king of Judah? Who is he in the Bible? We know he's not Zedekiah, right? Because he's got sons. And remember the last thing that Zedekiah saw was he saw his sons put to death. And so, um, who is he? Well, very clearly, Yakin is Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakin, or in Hebrew, Jehoiakin, right? Jehoiakin is Yakin. It's like calling somebody whose name is Joseph, Joe. Yakin is a shortened version of the same name, Jehoiakin. Okay, so this is Jehoiachin that we have on this, uh, on this inscription. So let's read this account. Keep in mind that um, as we read this event, this is an earlier event than what we've already read about Zedekiah and the fate of him and his sons. So Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem only for three months. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, there he is in the Bible, there he is on the ration tablet found through archaeology, surrendered to him, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, that's what he's doing in Babylon, right, he's been taken captive there, he made Matanya, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Now, let me ask you, let, let's say we're ancient Judeans, right? Who is, who is our legitimate king, according to this? Is it, is it the one who inherited the throne that is our king? Or is it the one that our enemy who conquered us put as king over us? 
it's Jehoiakim is the legitimate king. Uh, even the Babylonians call him the king of Judah. It's kind of like this. You ever watch a football game, right? You're watching a football game and they fake the ball, right? And they do such a good job that the cameraman follows the fake. You know what I'm talking about? Follows the fake. Then the person gets tackled and the cameraman realizes, oh my gosh, he doesn't have the ball. Who's got the ball? Who, who's the one with the ball, right? And that's a lot of times what happens to us when we're reading through Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, right? We, we're reading along. Who's got the promise? Who's got the promise that God made to David? Oh, some, it looks like Zedekiah's got the promise. He's got the promise. And then you, his sons get killed and you're, oh, he doesn't have the promise. Who's got the promise? And it's Jehoiakim going around the corner for the touchdown. <laughs> And so, so we often fall for the fake, but it's just a fake. Uh, God never breaks his promises, ever. And that is why, and I should say how important that is too, if you go back, look, Yaqin, king of Judah, and his sons. If we go to the New Testament and the genealogies in the New Testament, uh, one of Yaqin's sons is Shiltiel. And one of Shiltiel's sons is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Yaqin, Jehoiakim. And he's the one that leads the exiles back to Jerusalem. He's from the house of David, becomes a governor of Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the city and the temple. Um, so both, again, the Babylonian records and the biblical records agree that the house of David survives the Babylonian conquest and exile. Which is why we have uh, the book of Kings, meaning first and second Kings being one book originally, uh, ends with this hope, with these verses. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Awal Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived into the book of Kings. Why? Because it ends in hope. The promise of God is still alive. The Messiah is still coming from the house of David. Which, because it survives beyond this, brings us to our fifth and final uh, example of the archaeology behind the house of David. This is a storage area um, in Israel with what are called ossuaries. And ossuaries are stone coffins, stone bone boxes. They're the size of the largest bone in the, the femur, the largest bone in the human body. Um, there's a specific window of time that we'll talk about that they were used. And so wealthy Jews would lay out the bodies of, their, of the deceased. And um, over the course of a year or a little over a year, they would decompose into bones. And then they would re-enter the tomb and put those bones in a stone coffin, these uh, stone bone boxes called ossuaries. Okay, now in Jerusalem alone, there's been thousands and thousands of, uh, of tombs excavated with tens of tens of thousands of ossuaries. So imagine I'm standing in 
uh, it's like a Walmart. Imagine a Walmart with all the rows just filled with ossuaries. And uh, there's a really well-known Israeli archaeologist named Amos Cloner, and he was telling me one day about a tomb that he had excavated in Jerusalem back in the 1970s, and he was telling me about this ossuary that he found in there. He knew I was fascinated with the archaeology of the House of David, and so he said, you should go find this ossuary. So I go down to this place, and I've heard, you know, some of you um, talk about the the relationship between the Indiana Jones movies, right, and archaeology. Here's the one part of the Indiana Jones movies that is actually fits with archaeology. When they finally find the Ark of the Covenant, at the end of the movie, where do they put it? In a storage area. They do that all the time. This ossuary we're about to look at should be in a museum somewhere, not in a storage area. And uh, anyways, it drives me crazy. But uh, so this is the one that I'm looking for. It's like finding a book in a library. And in this particular section, it's number 45. And why am I looking for this ossuary? Because look at this. It's got a House of David inscription uh, in Hebrew and Aramaic. And look at the date of this inscription. First century BCE, that's BC, through the first century CE, that's AD. This very important window of time because this is the time of Jesus, first century A.D. We have a House of David inscription on an ossuary from the time of Jesus. Shouldn't that be in a museum somewhere? Uh, anyways, you see it pictured there to the right. I don't know if you can see or not, but that floral star on the right-hand side, you might be able to see scratch marks above that. Uh, finally found it and pulled it out to photograph it and video it more. And uh, those scratch marks above there are the name of the deceased inside. When this was found, there were the bones of a 25-year-old male inside. And we know what his name is because it's scratched on the outside of the ossuary. His name is Shalom. Shalom from the Hebrew word Shalom, which means peace. And so this is Shalom. Then we see in the catalog the identifying uh, inscription there on the left. And th this is where it is on the uh, ossuary itself. Um, and it says in Hebrew Aramaic, from the house of David. Shalom from the house of David. So again, this provides independent from the Bible, extra biblical evidence that at the time of Jesus, in Jerusalem, Jews are still identifying themselves as being from the lineage, as being from the royal dynasty, the house of David. Shalom from the house of David. Okay, now, this brings us to our fifth uh, example of archaeology, and we've gone over them chronologically from the earliest to the latest, so... Um, like I said, there's an overwhelming amount of uh, evidence for, for the house of David. But just with these five examples, the earliest one we covered being the house that David had built and lived in, right? The palace. Um, that dates to the time of King David, of course. And then the last one, this inscription on this ossuary, dates to the time of Jesus. So we have in just these five examples, we have archaeology dating from the king King David, all the way through to King David, or King Jesus, the Messiah. Um, 
a period of about a thousand years, a house in the hostile world, biblical world through all that intense history that we read about in our Bible survived for a thousand plus years. Wow. Um, So, if you think about the man buried inside this ossuary, he is Shalom from the house of David. He is a son of David, right? But Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, as we read in Luke 1. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. As a son of God, his reign will never end. (laughs) Amen. But listen to this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was given a thousand years earlier to David inside the walls of his palace? David, uh, from your own flesh and blood, is going to come an offspring. I'm going to establish his kingdom, uh, his kingdom, your kingdom, your throne, your family. Your house is never going to end. Fulfilled in Jesus, who is sitting on David's throne to this day and will forever and ever and ever. Um, So, what can we get from all of this? Well, one thing I hope that we get is this. When we're reading the Bible, the things that we're reading are real (laughs) They're so real. We're talking about real people, real events, real promises, where God demonstrates not only in his word, but also in history and even through archaeology that he keeps his promises, that he's faithful to his promises. It's so real. Again, that's what drives me nuts too, is what so many people are being lied to today, that the Bible isn't real, that it's, that it's mythology. Um, You can't give a talk like this. You can't even do what I do if it's mythology, right? You can't excavate Narnia. And so it's real. Uh, The other thing I want you to get is, uh, is that we have full assurance of salvation. The salvation that God has promised us is a lot like his promise to David. If we just take, for example, the familiar verse, John 3.16, right, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? David, your house will never end. It's never going to perish. It's going to last forever. He tells us the same, uh, that we will never perish but that we have eternal life, that our life in him will never end. Uh, If you think about Hebrews 8, 6, right? It says that the new covenant that we're under is superior to the old 
because it's based on better promises. Uh, the old ones are pretty darn good, aren't they? <laughs> uh, pretty darn good. The ones that we have are better. The Lord swore by his holiness his promise to David. Uh, the Lord came down and died for us and sealed in his blood the promise that he gave us of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. If you think about um, what our salvation looks like, you might have a picture in your head of what our salvation looks like. Um, here's a pretty good picture of our salvation. How about the one Sennacherib put on his wall back in 701 B.C.? Uh, we know that this is depicting Judeans from Lachish that were captured, but we also know that it represents um, what Sennacherib wanted to do to Hezekiah and his sons. But the Lord delivered Hezekiah and his sons from this fate. In fact, no king from the house of David ever suffered such humiliation and torture until a little over 700 years after the time of Hezekiah when the God of the universe came down, became a man from the family of David with the title Son of David who gave himself over to this fate. Instead of Assyrian soldiers there, you put Roman soldiers who stripped him down, who flogged him, who tortured him by putting him alive on top of a pole with a criminal crucified to the left, another criminal crucified to the right, where he breathed his last, he died and sealed his promise to us in his blood for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, which is why uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. I'll just close by saying this. There is no possible way under no circumstance any possibility that God's promise to David would fail. There was never, ever, any way, ever that would fail. And there is no way, no possibility, no circumstance that his promise to us will ever, ever, ever fail. Amen? Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of your faithfulness. We stand in awe of your grace and your salvation. And we thank you, Lord, that our salvation doesn't depend upon us. Lord, we're sorry for our unfaithfulness, but we thank you, Lord, that our salvation is sure because it's based on your faithfulness and your willingness to keep your promise to us. And we give you praise this morning for that. In Jesus' name, amen.